0: Guitar Wankers, i uh, really excited here tonight. I want to bring to you somebody who I find to be one of the most interesting people I've ever met. Um, I'm just going to tell you his name is John, and he took lessons with Barney Kessel when he was young. And John, here's the problem for me. I've heard your last name pronounced so many ways that, I, that I'm a little embarrassed about it. Koenig. And I, Koenig, okay. Yeah. John Koenig, we have with us, who happens to be uh, f- the son of Lester Koenig, who who founded Contemporary Records, of which uh, all those great Barney Kessel, Shelley Mann records, and John himself had a huge hand in bringing it into the future. I mean, I love those George Cable's records you produced, yeah. John. Yeah. Th- those are just so amazing to me. Of course, all the Art Pepper. It- it's just. Um, I just can't wait for all of our fans, or okay, our one fan or two, to, re- to really get to know you. So rather than tell stories that you're going to have to correct, let's just kind of start off by you telling us a little bit about it yourself.
1: Uh, I don't know where to start. I mean, if I start at the beginning, <laughs> I grew up in in the record business, in the jazz record business. Uh, my father started contemporary, actually started Good Time Jazz as a traditional jazz label because he, there was a New Orleans jazz revival in, in the Bay Area in the 40s, beginning in the 40s with people like Lou Waters and Bob Scobie and Turk Murphy. Uh-huh. And uh, there was a record shop in, in um, on Melrose here in Los Angeles, right near the entrance to Paramount Pictures where my father was working as a writer and uh, he had been a jazz record collector when he was a kid in New York. And he made a lot of friends there. Among the most enduring was John Hammond. And John was seven years older than my father and would take him along to sessions that that he, John, was producing. Um, which was pretty a remarkable thing. And uh, so my father kind of got the bug for wanting to have a jazz record company from that experience. Um, Then uh, he went away to college, he went to to Dartmouth and was the uh, music and uh, jazz and film reviewer for the Dartmouth newspaper and one of his uh, classmates at Dartmouth was Bud Schulberg, whose father, B.P. Schulberg, was the head of production at Paramount Pictures. And B.P., being the dutiful father, subscribed to the Dartmouth paper, and he liked my father's reviews. And my father spent a holiday, a holiday or two out in California with the Schulbergs and developed a relationship with B.P. So my grandfather was a judge. So my father was required to go to law school, and he went to Yale Law School. And then my grandfather died, so my father quit (laughs) uh, and and joined the circus. All uh, for all intents and purposes, he became he he went to work for WNEW radio in New York for a guy called Martin Block. There was a famous program called make-believe ballroom that staged concerts and it was a, a jazz mostly big band kind of show uh-huh. and he had been he did that for about a year and then he got a telegram from bp saying come to Los, drop everything come to los angeles i'm going to set you up as a writer at paramount well <laughs> that's some, <laughs> the amazing telegram of all time to get and he got it and he came to uh to la and i think it was uh 1937. He went to work at Paramount, and uh, the um, the Jazzman Record Shop was one of his haunts. It was right near where he was working, and he became friends with the owners, Dave Stewart and his wife, Marilee Morton. Morden. Um, and Marilyn was an interesting character. I don't recall ever having met her, but her her goal in life was to take. T-Bone Walker, off Central Avenue, and make him a star. Whoa. That was That was her, her big aim. Anyway, so the Jazzmen not only sold records, but they made them. And the first records my father produced were Lou Waters' records in 1941 that he and Dave Stewart drove a, a bunch of gear up there and recorded Lou Waters' band in a ballroom, all of which... Um, was released on the Jazzman label, and then the war happened, my father went in the film unit there, and when he, by the time he got back, Marilyn and, and Dave had gotten divorced, and she and Marilee had married Nesui Erdogan, who was Ahmed Erdogan's older brother, and as Ahmet used to describe him, his hero, his idol, and Nesui had a very refined taste. And uh, made some wonderful Kid Horry records, starting in 1943, 44, 45, for, for the, the Jazzman label. So Nessui then became the Jazzman.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, then uh, as these things go, Nessui and Merrily got divorced. And so they decided to sell the catalog. And my father bought it, and that was the foundation of his record label. The the cat, some of which he had produced, some of which Nessie had produced, but it was all almost all traditional jazz. I mean, it was Kid Ori and the San Francisco New Orleans revival, and uh, Bunk Johnson, uh, who was a a New Orleans legend. Uh, the era earlier than Louis Armstrong. And um, so he, and he signed the Firehouse Five, which was kind of a novelty band, but a very kind of kinetic, exciting band that a lot of his friends in show business were fans of, including Ava Gardner, of all people. Uh-huh. And, and uh, so uh, he was working for Willie Wyler, the famous director. And he was Wyler's my father was Weiler's second in command for nine years, starting from the war through Roman holiday, which is how we happened to live in Italy for a year when I was two and three years old. And um, uh, so um uh, Nessui and Dave, both of Merrily's Marilee's exes, came to work at Good Time Jazz and Contemporary. Now the where did contemporary come from? Yeah. My father had worked in a um, part of his part of his uh, remit was to hire composers for Weiler's movie. and he he was fascinated with avant-garde music, and and so he he decided that he wanted to have a forum for many of these contemporary, quote, unquote, composers whom he had befriended in the course of his work for Weiler and around town. And, and I should say that when he was uh, before the war, there was a famous uh, salon run by a, a woman who was a multifaceted person. She had been an actress in Germany. Her name was Salka Viertel, and uh, she was Greta Garbo's companion and acting coach. And Her son, Peter Viertel, was one of the credited writers on The African Queen, the Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn movie, John Huston movie.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And uh, Salka, being a German expatriate, used to have this salon in which she would have all the great German intellectual uh, expatriates come uh, regularly. I think it was once a week. This was before I was born, although I did not solve it later. What year would this be, John? Well, I think it it started in the late 30s.
0: Okay, so this is even before America even got into the war.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh But the war was going on, and people were being you know, marginalized in Germany were escaping. And so uh, my father at the time had was renting a guest house on the old Malibu Colony Road from a guy called Hans Eisler, who was a a, a German composer who came to Hollywood as part of that, uh, that uh, exodus and uh, was trying to Get established as a film music composer, and uh, Eisler and his wife took a like. They were childless, and they took a liking to my father, and so they they kind of brought him along to various things, including Salp's salon, which is how he was he got introduced to people like Bertolt Brecht, which is part partly how he. Became so interested in avant-garde things, and also uh, Thomas Mann, and just a large coterie of, uh, of German expatriate intellectuals. Many of whom were famous today,
0: wow. and were
1: famous at the time. So uh, that's how contemporary started. Years later, he wanted to, to have a, as I say, a forum. For these these guys to to have high quality recordings of their music uh, played well and and uh, recorded well, and um, then in nineteen it was nineteen fifty one or fifty two, Howard Rumsey and and his partner John Levine in the Lighthouse, you know Howard had he was a bass player from he was a Kenton bass player as a lot of the early contemporary records artists were Kenton alumni and uh but he decided with John Levine to to open and run this nightclub and the lighthouse all-stars which he led which uh, Howard led
0: Mm -hmm.
1: performed there as well as many other people Uh, and so Howard and John tried their hand at recording and they made an album I think it was a 10-inch album Uh, in those days that was the format and um they decided it was too much work to run a label and as as Howard told me a saloon (laughs) so they approached my father and said can you take this off our hands and so then he he decided yeah let's let's do that and so he started the contemporary records we all know as the contemporary modern jazz label Ah. and relegated the, um, the classical contemporary stuff to the Contemporary Composers series. So it was under the same umbrella, but it wasn't Contemporary Records anymore. It was the Contemporary Composers series. And that's how it got started. And I came along in 1950, so I remember being dragged off to... I was actually... My mother was taken whisked away from a recording session to give birth to me
0: that's, wow
1: that's, it was. A, do you a, a know which Turk session Mur- it was? Turk Murphy
0: wow and you know here's we have a connection because you know I'm from San Francisco so I spent a lot of time listening to Turk and actually played in that group occasionally so much later of course
1: sure <laughs> well I love Turk. Yeah. Turk was just a wonderful guy. And so uh I remember um in the early days looking through the glass in the studio and being held in someone's arms. I'm assuming it was my mother's arms, and Shelley Mann kind of clowning on the other side of the glass in a break, you know, moving his arms around and he I remember one time he put a tenor saxophone mouthpiece cover on his nose. <laughs> Oh, wow. To try, to try and get me to laugh, which uh-huh. I think I did. And uh, so I was. I think that was probably at Capitol, because the Contemporary Studio didn't open until uh, 1955, I think, or 56. So the early Contemporary Records were done at Capitol? Yeah, although one, I think the probably the most famous early one, which was uh, Shelley Man, My Fair Lady with Andre Previn. Yeah. And Leroy vinegar was done at radio recorders. Okay. Unfortunately the tape machine there had a flutter. I guess oh. there was some there was some sort of grit on the capstan idler wheel or the capstan. Uh-huh. And so if you, you listen carefully you can hear a kind of flutter. But uh hey, when, I don't when, think when you, was
0: Fair My Fair Lady recorded? Do you remember what year? Fifty seven. Fifty-seven. So that, but so, so this, so the Contemporary Studios were open by that time, and Roy Dunan yeah. had, had moved over. Okay.
1: Yeah, it might have been either they were they were working on the gear, or maybe they were they were converting to stereo, because, you know, we we made the first contemporary record that was recorded in stereo was the first Curtis Counts album. Um. Uh and um beautiful sounding record too beautiful record oh man i love those uh, that was late 1956 if i remember uh-huh. uh, i i'm referring now to the archives more than my recollection because i would have been six uh-huh. and um uh but the radio recorders was an anomaly Okay. The early records were at Capitol, which is where Roy Dunan worked. Uh-huh. And Roy was the 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 legendary Capitol engineer John Palladino's assistant. But he sometimes recorded things on his own. For example, he w- he was the recording engineer for uh Tennessee Ernie Ford's Sixteen Tons, which is a famous record. Oh yeah. And um when you listen to that uh, critically, you can hear, "Hey, that's a pretty good sounding record." <laughs> As we're, you know, virtually everything that came out of Capitol in the fifties, you know, and of course, I think of the great Sinatra and Nat King Cole records. They, they leave to mind, although Roy was not the the uh, the engineer on those, but um, he was uh, able to do some things there, but. He liked my father he immediately thought my father was uh impressive because my father brought his own mics ah your, you know c12s and u 47s and things like that so where did your father get these mics he just decided he was going to get them, and he got them
0: oh okay so I he, don't know
1: I don't know i I don't know if Gotham audio existed then but you know, he got them somewhere.
0: Uh-huh. Your father had like a real interest in... Uh, he
1: whole, did. Yeah. In, interesting in, in the technical aspect of both, both uh, movies and, um, and uh, records. When he was um, working for Wyler, he befriended um, a lot of uh, well-known um, technical people. Uh and um you know great cinematographers and learned a lot from them and even wrote wrote profiles of some of them uh for magazines um so he 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 fairly early on came to believe and I think he was right that there was an expressive value to the way things were Put you know uh, on film or or it, you know it was even before tape when he when he first started you know when he first started making records it was before tape. Uh-huh. And, um, so, uh huh. And so you know he that was something that was very important to him the, the quality of audio. Wow. And you know, sometimes I think you know. I mean, he and I, I being uh, uh, at the time a, a wise guy, a teenager mm-hmm. would would argue with him about things. Like, for example, I had a band. I, I you were you started out by asking me about me, but I ended up. Talking about contemporary and the well, sound. Well, that's, that's
0: uh, good. I I, I, di- I diverted, not you, but no, I you know. I did.
1: I kind of did too, but but anyway, I had a I I I made a living later on as a cellist, as you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, but and that's an. Uh, uh, I don't want to toot my horn and say interesting, but a bizarre story. I think some people find. Well, but no,
0: I mean, I just bragged about it to Troy before we started. So well, this is a good segue to that.
1: Was I was I started playing guitar when I was five. Uh huh. I, I first I wanted a trombone because Kid Ori used to play at our house, uh-huh. and he would. And that was fascinating to me. And, of course, I knew knew and loved Turk and Ward Kimball from the Firehouse Five. They all played trombone, and it was kinetic. Right. You know, a little five-year-old can't play a trombone. (laughs) So so my parents said, well, how about a guitar? And so then they got me a ukulele, which I was devastated. (laughs) That was not what I wanted. If I was going to get a guitar, I wanted a guitar. But anyway, I got one at... At five, and uh, was just playing, you know, folky, strummy kind of stuff. And then uh, when I was a young teenager, there there was a club in Los Angeles called the Ash Grove, which you may have heard of. That was a folk club, but they also had blues and uh, bluegrass, and you know, really authentic people. So. I remember from maybe age 13, I would go there and hear Light and Hopkins, Fred McDowell, or Booker White, or uh, uh, Doc Watson, or the Kentucky Colonels, which was uh, Clarence White's group. And uh, later on, muddy waters and albert king and junior wells and buddy guy and you know that was music that really resonated with me and i was again i don't if i find it unbecoming uh to toot my own horn but i was sort of the go-to teenage blues white blues guitar player in los angeles in those days but i was conflicted about it and my father really discouraged me from pursuing that he wanted me to do classical music, and I was a, a music major at UCL. Well, I first went to Cal, Berkeley, uh, and then I, the first day of summer vacation that year, driving back down from Berkeley to L.A., I got in a really bad car accident, so I spent the summer in the hospital oh, Jeez. and uh, got out. Pretty much, just that uh, my parents decided they—they uh, they were divorced, but they were both in L.A. and they decided i, I was too young and, and irresponsible to um, <laughs> to be away from them, so they they engineered me, uh, transformed UCLA. I remember the day I got out of the hospital. I went to I was in those days a scrawny little guy weighed 114 when I got out of the hospital at five six. Wow! So wow. Uh, because I, had, I I didn't know I I went to, when I went to Berkeley I was I had graduated from high school at 16, and I was uh, on my own with roommates and didn't know how to eat so I was kind of pathetic, and uh, went to the went to the Ash Grove, and uh, Howlin' Wolf was there, and so I stood in line to see Howlin' Wolf, and he he gigantic guy you know and i'm this little scrawny guy and i have my arm in a sling and he got this enormous smile on his face when he looked at me he said what's the matter man somebody break your arm (laughs) (laughs) and uh but anyway i i you know i love that music and you know that accident did i broke my my shoulder really badly it's still not uh 50 some odd years later and uh in factory condition uh but i'm it's serviceable now but it was maybe six months before i was able to articulate my fingers on my left hand so that didn't do wonders for my guitar playing and at that point i was playing classical guitar a little bit and attempting to do jazz and that's when my father said uh you need to study with barney so so so, Barney, so
0: so you studied with Barney later than I I had originally thought. So you studied yeah, with Barney already, back in your college years, right? Yeah,
1: I was already a guitar player. Oh, okay. But I wasn't, I wasn't per se a jazz guitar player. Yeah. Although I admired jazz guitar players, I was in those days baffled by you know the harmony and you know one of the things that was so great about Barney's playing was his chord playing. Yeah. But somehow I couldn't. I couldn't get him to, t- to show me that he wanted me to play scales and stuff, which was cool. You know, I learned. I mean, that's valuable stuff. But yeah. uh, anyway, as as I I studied him with him for maybe eight months, and uh, then my school workload became, you know, too burdensome to to support either. Uh, jazz guitar lessons or classical guitar lessons, which I was also trying to, to full in. But I remember Barney, you know, he had a particular way of playing. I mean, Barney was, he was from Muskogee, Oklahoma. <laughs> he was an Okie from Muskogee. And yeah. he, uh, and he um, idolized Charlie Christian, who was also from Oklahoma. And Barney bore Charlie Christian's cudgels. You know, I mean, if you listen to Barney's playing, it, it is straight out of out of Charlie Christian. Oh, definitely. And uh, and you know, he had that kind of attack. Well, when I came to Barney, I I was I had learned as what what the old timers in those days called a finger style guitar player. In you know, I have very uh, tough, hard fingernails, so I could use. I didn't use picks. I didn't use finger picks and I didn't use a plectrum. And so Barney uh, wanted to change that. So, you know, he taught me how to use pick. Although after uh, playing with him, I I reverted to my my own idiosyncratic way. Uh, But I, I understood where he was coming from with it because that was his sound and that was how he you know, he said, I don't want I don't want your sound to be a milk toast kind of sound. I want it to be present, which was where he was coming from with with the whole pick business. Right. And he had, he. I don't know if if this is universally accepted uh, terminology, but he would refer to up picks and down picks, and he notated them in music the same way on string on you know with bow we we indicate up bow and down bow. Yeah. Uh, I don't know maybe you can tell me if that's common in common use but Yeah
0: yeah that, that you know again depending upon who you're talking to everybody yeah. you know I mean the plectrum guitar unlike the bow has a far uh, shorter historical life so that it doesn't have a um, you know we don't have the like the right way and the wrong way the way the bow world the, you know the classical bow world does you know of like yeah. 200 years of this is the best way to do this we we have like we, well, well you'd be you
1: surprised know. you'd really be surprised oh, about okay that because um, uh, I, I came into playing with a bow you know playing the cello right late also um, I was studying music composition and theory and I had a real Stern taskmaster for a professor named I mean, Henry Lazaroff died a few years ago who didn't didn 't acknowledge the guitar as a real instrument and <laughs> and, and uh, didn 't acknowledge popular music as valid and, or you know didn 't had practically never heard of jazz yeah and um, so he kind of shamed me into picking up another instrument and um, I happened to uh, come across a, a, a bulletin board that had ads on it. That There was a, an ad on a three by five index card that said, for sale, $25 cello. It doesn't have that nice Stradivarius tone, but it will look good standing in the corner next to your oud. <laughs> as, it happened, as it happened, I was playing the oud in a, a Persian music group at UCLA, because UCLA had an ethnomusicology department. And you could, uh, you're required to graduate to do a certain number of performance classes. And I was able to do a lot of them in ethno. So I was playing the (laughs) oud. And uh, it just seemed fortuitous. So I bought this thing. And then I thought, well, you know, I'll I'll, like Oscar Pettiford. You know, that was what I was thinking. And then I, I fooled around with it a little while and I said, you know, maybe I should take some lessons. So there was a, a guy in my composition seminar who played the fiddle, the violin, and I asked him, did he know any cello teachers? And it happened that he was dating a girl who was studying the cello and um, directed me to Terry King, who was at the time one of Gregor Piotr assistants. <laughs> and um, so I had, I, I had lessons with Terry, and I didn't realize it probably for 20 years that i was something of a prodigy and i I don't know i'm i guess i'm thick headed because after six weeks terry said i want to take you to play for pedagorski wow So, so this is six weeks of lessons you know but i was musical because i played the guitar well if i may say and it it was a you know there are certain similarities you're articulating your left hand and but the bow is completely different, although getting sound out of an instrument is not that foreign to yeah. someone who's been playing guitar for by that time fifteen years um, so anyway, he took me to just to, to play not just for Pigorsky but to the whole master class. I've been playing the cello for six weeks, and here I am in front of. Like the the great young cellists in the world, <laughs> of whom have come you know from all over the the world to be, and and uh, one of whom later went on to win the gold medal in the Tchaikovsky competition, and you know people you know international soloists. The one guy was uh, had a long career as the principal cellist in the Concertgebouw Orchestra in Amsterdam, one of the world's great orchestras. I mean, this is not just a bunch of guys from a neighborhood <laughs> yeah. and so i was terrified but somehow i acquitted myself and Gorski took an interest in me so i didn't i wasn't his official student at that point but he he invited me to come to the class whenever i wanted and i thought he was just being polite and my teacher then said to me, after three months and my not showing up at the class, he said, why don't you go to the class? And I said, I thought he was just being nice. He said, you idiot. <laughs> he, meant, he meant for you to go to the class. So then I started going to the class. And then uh, Terry was in a trio that got an artist in residence gig at Grinnell College in, in I, Iowa, which incidentally is Herbie Hancock's alma mater.
0: Yeah, and, and also uh, my friend, Peter Coyote went there. You know. Oh,
1: yeah, and uh, uh, Gary Giddens also. I think. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, Peter news, if I'm not mistaken. Right,
0: right. You know something I noticed, John, and I don't. I'm, I, I probably am not pointing something out you're not aware of, but you know, you said you were interested in trombone, then you played the guitar, then the cello. I mean, it seems to me that the tenor clef or the tenor instruments. Spoke to you like almost from day one of your life? Uh, Yeah, I think that that may be. I played trumpet for a few years. Okay, okay, so maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just, I mean, I know I've always been drawn to the cello, you know, and tenor sax. I mean, there's just like a certain thing about that range. Yeah, I do identify
1: with it for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and trombones too. I mean, whenever I have an opportunity to put a trombone on a record, you know, it's like always the first thing I go for. You know what <laughs> I mean? And let's face it, you know, I mean, with the with the agility of the saxophone or various other instruments, you know, I mean, trombone isn't something that most people like jump to as a first choice, but I find myself doing that. I and I, and I and I attribute that to a range factor. You know, well, you know. I do
1: identify when I when I meet a trombone player, I say we're fellow members of the tenor clef fraternity. Right,
0: right. You know, uh,
1: and they seem to appreciate that as a rule. Yeah, just an observation. So, yeah, no, I I I think there's something to it. Uh, although. The, thing, the, the real thing that got me about the trombone when I was little was that it was so kinetic. Yeah. You know, that slide was just, it, 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 it spoke to me just watching it. Yeah. And, of course, Kid Ori was, I mean, I, you know, the, I can't say that I perceived it as authentic as a three-year-old <laughs> but I sure, I sure perceived it as real human expression, like I'd never heard before. Particularly when he was standing right in front of me, playing. Yeah. Uh, and I just loved that, and I loved the growl because it wasn't, it wasn't just that he played, you know, like uh, Glenn Miller, you know, a beautifully, like you know, featuring tone and the vibrato. I mean, he had that incredible growl.
0: Yeah.
1: And that that really spoke to me. So, but, uh, so anyway, eventually I, I became, I guess, three years later, two, two or three years later, I became a full-fledged member of the Master Masterclass. And through a, um, a weird, uh, Quirk of geography, I um, I ended up being the person who drove Piatigorsky to class, if, twice a week, from from Brentwood to USC. So, and remembering that this was seventy four seventy five, and we had the gas uh, rationing going on, and, right. and and diamond lanes and huge horrible traffic. We spent a lot of time together in the car, and miracle of miracles, we became very close, very close friends. I didn't realize it at the time, and he didn't broadcast it. He really didn't tell anybody. We knew he was ill, but he had terminal cancer, and he put on a brave—I mean, he was was extraordinary. I mean, he was fully himself to the end, not— physically in terms of playing but uh you know if he would demonstrate in class i mean it was the most gorgeous thing you ever heard not in terms of the beauty of the sound necessarily although he had a beautiful sound but he was all about expression and i think that may be one of the reasons he related to me so well because i was not like all of the other students a hot house flower You know, I came up in the jazz world. My idea of expression was Muddy Waters or Miles Davis or Coltrane, all of whom I was lucky enough to know to a greater or lesser degree. Um, And he, you know, he used to have uh, the Chico Hamilton quintet play at his New Year's parties. Really? I think he was originally attracted because... Fred Katz was in the group. Right, right. But I talked to Jim Hall about this, because Jim played at some of those parties. You you know, my father and I did a, a session together for John Snyder. He he started a label at, at uh, A&M called Horizon that didn't have a very long life. And uh, John idolized my father, and he wanted him to record a duo record with... Uh, red mitchell and jim and um didn't really work because jim was uh i i I didn't know him well i liked him a lot but he seemed very kind of self-effacing that night and he he kept wanting to turn the the tone control on his he had this beautiful es-175 and he kept wanting to have the tone be all the way to zero. Right. So it just sounded like muffled. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I suggested to my father maybe we mic the strings and mix that so that there would be some, at least some kind of attack or something other than just the, the fuzzy bottom. But... Uh, I think he thought that would be too intrusive, so he mixed it, and, and consequently all the stuff was unusable, although they, they played beautifully. But uh, I, I had mentioned to uh, Jim that I I understood he had been in Chico's group when they played at Piotr He said, oh, please say hello to your master, as he said. Because at the time, I was in the Piotr class.
0: Right.
1: We did this session. But uh, uh, and, and speaking of guitars you know that es-175 i love that guitar uh, when he and red went to have a bite to eat and my father and roy dunan and i were in the studio alone and they were they were like frustrated at the sa- at you know not being able to get a sound and they asked me "Well, go play his guitar so i started playing his guitar and it was just so so wonderful to play my favorite uh big body electric guitar I've ever played, second only to yours, Barney's.
0: Yeah.
1: Which I I I mean, I played that thing and it was it was magical. But you probably experience that every day.
0: Yeah.
1: And how about that picture I found of, of Oh <laughs> man, the
0: picture with Django, yeah. Before he wonder, before he got rid of the headstock, yeah, yeah. I, you, wonder
1: if, uh, yeah. I wonder if I wonder if if Django fooled around on that guitar. I bet he did.
0: Wow, I can't see why he wouldn't. You know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So you know, there's a real history to that guitar.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: and I'm happy to say that Gorski used to like to play on my cello because. One of the things that happened, we, I was officially in his class for a year, and then he was, we had summer, and he used to call me to go over to his house practically every day, and he would give me lessons, and we would play duos together. Jesus. And, <laughs> and I, I didn't realize it at the time because I, I was thrilled at the, whole, at the whole notion of playing duos with Pietagorski that he was supposed to be playing, preparing to play the Brahms Double Concerto, two concerts with Isaac Stern in Philadelphia. And he he just was too sick to practice. He couldn't face the idea of practicing. And the only way he could bring himself to, to play anything on the cello was to play duos with me. Wow. God. And uh, it was, if I had known that, I would have... I, I would have been less self-absorbed and more concerned about trying to see to it that he was in better shape because, you know, he really, he died that summer and he was very, very sick. Uh, but it was, you know, it was one of the great thrills to to play with him, those little duos. And, and he, um, he would say, do you think it would be okay if I played your cello for a minute? So then I got to play on one of his two strads, which Whoa. was quite something. And um, so anyway, uh, you know, I, I drove him and his wife to the airport when he was on his way back east. And, and he said, you know, he said, I want you to come in the yard. And he had a plum tree he loved. And he said, I would to pick the plums because they're really good. Mm. Which I didn't do and I kicked my, kicked myself for not doing. And then next thing I you know, and I, I dropped him off at the airport, I got him and his one of his two Strads through the the check in. They had a security check in. There was a very kind of nice lady in a uniform who was checking all the stuff that came through and she had him open the case and she said, Oh, you, you play this? And he said, Yes not having a clue as to either who he was or the phenomenally valuable artifact of history that she was having him open up and look at and she started to touch it and I said you better you better not he he wouldn't have because given his history in life he didn't like to challenge people in authority but um so she didn't touch it and I said this is a really valuable this is you know I don't know what, in 1976 dollars what it would have been worth but today it was yeah. worth 15 million more maybe and uh, and uh, so I got them through and I waited with them for the plane to be called and then he stuck a bunch of bills in my hand to pay for the parking because I had driven Mrs. Piedagorski's car and I said <laughs> well I'm going to practice a lot and he said you'd better with a smile on his face I mean it was encouraging and that was the last I saw him and then I got a call from uh, Jeffrey Solo, who was one of the other assistants. Who said, "I have some really bad news," and he told me that Petegorsky had died, and so that threw my world into an uproar because not only was did I regard him as the the greatest person I'd ever known, but that was going to be my my life for at least the next year, or maybe two. Um, and so I, I didn't know what, what was going to happen. And then about a week later, Jeff called me and said, "I got a call from Sidney Harth, who's the director of the uh, the, the co music director of the Jerusalem Symphony. Lucas Foss was the other. Uh-huh. Sidney was at that time the concertmaster of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and a wonderful musician." and uh jeff said sydney called me and asked if i ha- if i could recommend someone to audition for the the role of principal cellist of the jerusalem symphony and i said but i don't want to go to jerusalem he said look just go play for him so i i said well okay so i didn't really think too much about it i made an appointment to go play for sydney he had a, a condo here in town and uh he hired me. Nah. Miracle of miracles. What? And, and so, then, so then I made my way to, to Jerusalem where I stayed for a year. And then I, while I was there, I had just gotten a telephone because, you know, in those days, in the 70s, you couldn't just get a phone in many places in the world. Just call up the phone company and get a phone. It took six months, I think, for us to get a phone. My roommate, actually the the trombone player in the in the orchestra. And we got a phone and it must have been two weeks after that I got a call from Sweden from a friend from the class, the the leading young cellist of Sweden, who was a member of the Pietagorski class. And he had tracked he knew my mother's phone number, so he he called her and, and she gave him my phone number in jerusalem and he called me he said there's an opening here in the swedish radio symphony if you want to audition for it i'll tell them to wait to hear it to you and and uh, um, so let me know if you want to and i said yeah i do because it was a a, a great experience playing in jerusalem the orchestra was not a first world-class orchestra. It was a decent professional orchestra, but of a second rank, I would say. And I was in a leadership position, which is, when you consider how inexperienced I was, at that time I had been playing the cello maybe five years. <laughs> there, were, there were people in the cello section who had been in that section since before I was born. Yeah. So it was a little bit uh, tough in that way because i was i i could play solos that's why they hired me because i had an idea of sound and i could play accurately but in terms of the intricacies of being a professional cello section leader i was way way behind the curve and um and it was rough uh, but still at the same time incredibly valuable i i learned an incredible amount that year so Anyway, I went to, to Sweden. My friend Ula Carlson, his name was, is, was the uh, at that time the fourth chair principal in Swedish Radio Symphony. And he had always talked about the Swedish Radio Symphony as being a really great orchestra. And I said, yeah, sure, you know, nice. You think everything Swedish is great. Right. And he said, come, come see me uh, at... Um, at the rehearsal, we'll have lunch. It was like the day before my audition, so I went and I uh, got there a little early and heard them recording—not uh, recording—rehearsing the Thieving Magpie overture with uh, Gennady Rozhdestvensky, the famous Russian conductor, and it was impeccable. I mean, it was it was jaw-droppingly like, a, a great orchestra. And I was terrified, and so Lula and I went and had lunch. And I, I barely could eat anything. I was so nervous. I went back to the hotel, and and practiced. Drove everybody crazy, I'm sure. And came to the audition, and uh, uh, played. And uh, I played a transcription that Tiedagorski had arranged called Haydn the Vertimento, there's an instrument called the baritone, which is now only seen in very few museums. It's a bowed instrument with sympathetic strings and it was a favorite of Prince Esterhazy, so Haydn wrote pieces for it. (laughs) Trios, mostly. And they're consigned to oblivion, so he, uh, Piotr Gorski decided to take some of these pieces that were um, quite beautiful and string them together as little things that he could play on recital. Some of which were technically virtuosic and others of which were extremely melodic and, and expressive. So I played two contrasting movements from that. And I said, well, do you wanna hear the Schumann concerto, which I prepared? I said, no, we don't need to hear that. So I'm thinking, well, maybe they don't like me. And so then they, they had me sight read something it was, uh, you know, like five flats and all kinds of double flats. And it was the uh, boarding, uh, 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 some piece of boarding that they were playing. And um, my friend Ulla told me, I didn't and oh, by the way, when I did this audition, usually you do an audition, you think, well, you're playing in front of a committee and, you know, there's sometimes a curtain. No, I was on the stage. With the whole orchestra <laughs> in, in the hall, wow. kind of terrifying. Wow. But anyway, so uh, so anyway, I, I I kind of just blew the sight reading part of the audition, and so I thought, well, this is this is uh, not going to be uh, my finest hour. And uh, so then I went uh, left. Nobody said anything to me. And I, I left and did some kind of business I had to do. And then I went back to uh, to Ula's house because he said to come over afterward. And his uh, his wife opened the door when I knocked and she said, oh, you got the job. <laughs> you got the job. And I said, what? <laughs> I did? <laughs> Nobody told me. So that's how I found out. And I, I ended up in Swedish Radio Symphony, which is an extraordinary orchestra. And we played with all these great conductors uh, and at the time you know red mitchell was living in stockholm right right yeah that, that i should call red so i called him and what what an unbelievably sweet guy he was and we you know we became really good friends and used to hang out together a lot and he liked the fact that i played the cello because he was tuning his bass in fifths right like a cello an octave lower and so we used to Jam, and he had a, 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 a studio in his basement, in the basement of the apartment he, house he lived in. And we used to go down there and jam and just hang out and eat and do whatever. And I used to invite him to our concerts, and he would have me come to his shows. And, so, you know, so that was great. Matter of fact, one, one, to, one concert, this is kind of a strange story. We played Bruckner's Eighth Symphony with Carlo Maria Giulini. Bruckner's Eighth Symphony is an enormous, emotionally wrenching, hour and a half long symphony. Huge, loud, there's all kinds of brass. There was a row of tenor tubas and eight French horns, and you know, just, and believe me, sitting where I sat was near the brass. I I felt it. But it was an extraordinary concert. Probably the 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 crowning musical achievement of my life was playing in that concert. It was really amazing, and Giulini was amazing. And he and I had been friendly. We played three weeks of concerts with him. We had you know guest conductors come through, and he was one of them. And so I greeted him one day as he walked across the stage for rehearsal in Italian, because. We'd lived in Italy when I was a little, when my father was working on Roman Holiday, and I was left with the housemaids who were, my mother told me, two teenage girls. And uh, they were very loving toward me, and they, I was, they just loved children, and they taught me Italian as an Italian would learn it, sort of, but through immersion. So I didn't speak well, like a mature adult but i also had an authentic roman accent which i still have so i greeted him and he he did a double take and he said are, are you italian in italian i said no i don't know little i don't really speak italian very well so anyway he it, he was very gentlemanly and he he was a very uh, elegant character genuinely and uh very courtly very uh elevated demeanor and i always felt a connection with him after that And after three weeks of concerts you know we saw each other a lot and uh you know i felt like he identified with me in some way so anyway after we played brookner's eighth uh it was an enormous success and i it was our last concert with him so i went up in the concert in stockholm where we played in those days and uh to say goodbye and uh i waited in line i was there with my tails with my cello case and the door was ajar and i could see he was talking to a guy who looked vaguely familiar but whom i couldn't place he looked a little to me like a young walter cronkite but i didn't you know he was obviously not walter cronkite they were speaking in german about italian opera and i didn't speak german really but i picked that up And then that guy came out and he nodded at me in a kind of meaningful way. And I was a little bit bashful because by that point I wasn't, I was a foreigner and I didn't know the ways of behaving really. But I went in to say goodbye to uh, Giulini and he was very sweet and very nice. And then I went down to the artist entrance where I was to meet Red Mitchell who came to the concert, and his friend, a jazz pianist and, and jazz journalist named Ula Ringstrom. And so we're standing there. Again, I'm in my tails with my cello, and we're trying to figure out where we're going to go to eat. And the guy, the Walter Cronkite-looking guy, came down out of the elevator. The, now, this is, the artist entrance is basically a square room with an elevator and a, an entrance and a security counter. Right. And so this guy came down, and he walked over to me and stuck out his hand and said, in Swedish, thank you very much for this evening. It was uh, really wonderful. And I was sort of abashed, but managed to say thank you in Swedish. And then he turned and left. And I turned to Red and Ula, and they were slack-jawed. And they said, don't you know who that was? And I said, no. It had been Ingmar Bergman. So, wow. So, uh, you know, that was quite a, quite an experience playing in Stockholm with that orchestra. Because it was, you know, I, I talked to Lynn Harrell. Do you know who Lynn Harrell was? Uh. I, I hate to say was, because he died last year. But he was one of our great cellists. And uh, when I first met him, we had the same doctor. And I first met him in my doctor's office. And so we were talking, and I told him I'd played in the Swedish radio symphony. And he said, that's the orchestra everybody tries to get a solo engagement with, but they have very, very few openings for those. So, you know, that was a thing. It was a really wonderful orchestra. But, you know, the end of that, that story is that halfway through the season, my father died suddenly at age 59. And so I had to pick up stakes and uh, come back and deal with uh, running contemporary records and uh, trying to get my father's estate closed which was um, not an easy matter shall we say because his wife my stepmother Uh um, i found out later was being treated for paranoid schizophrenia. But I always knew that she was uh, trouble from virtually before they got married. Mm-hmm. She and I were always at loggerheads and she hated my guts. Mm. And she, My father left the company to my sister and me, but she sued us. We sp- spent seven years being sued by her while I'm trying to produce records and trying to run a record label. It was just really a not, not a happy situation. And, and so the
0: cello just like went into the case, and you didn't play. Yeah,
1: yeah, I didn't play for fifteen years.
0: What? Because I mean, uh, you're like at this at this incredible pedestal, and then something happens in your yeah, family. Yeah, it was
1: awful. But but, but I, mean, uh, you know, I mean, I mean,
0: obviously, you know, you had the option of saying, well, well. Fuck it. I'm going to play the cello. You guys deal with it. But you did. Yeah, but there were no guys. It was
1: just my sister and me and my sister was a ballet dancer and she hadn't grown up in the in the business, you know. Uh-huh. As I had after I graduated from UCLA, my father said come have lunch with me. It was after my last final in college. Yeah. And he said, "Okay, when you come to work on Monday." And I said, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> was that anything about work? Right. And the first thing I did at the, at the record company was clean the toilets. So he, you know, I mean, I mean, it was a symbolic thing, but he wanted me to learn the business from the ground up. And right. and indeed I did. Uh, he wanted me to follow in his shoes. I think it would have been nice if he'd given me a choice, but eventually he said, look, just go play the cello. And oh, I really? Did. But, okay. But, um... Because he knew that's what I wanted to do. But, you know, I I certainly I love jazz and I love, you know, the idea of making records and I love the musicians he recorded and I love the technical aspects of it. I wasn't so crazy about, you know, dealing with distributors and trying to get paid and (laughs) those kind of things, because I was, you know, I said I wasn't a hothouse flower um, compared with all the other it from the Pyatigorsk class, but I was a little bit of a hothouse flower in terms of being protected from the vicissitudes of life in the real world, making a a, a small business work, particularly in a field that was not, uh, shall we say, highly remunerative, as a rule.
0: Yeah, I know, but but okay, mm. so. Here we are. Your father dies, and you have to come back and and take care of everything, but also take over everything. Right? Am I yeah. wrong? I mean, it's not just take care of everything; it's take over everything. And what? Yeah, year- and he, he he had left
1: a uh, number of projects unfinished in the can.
0: Uh huh.
1: Um. There was. A Ray Brown trio with Cedar Walton and Elvin. There was the Art Pepper, Art Pepper Live at the Vanguard with Elvin, George Mraz, and George Cables.
0: Yeah. That,
1: that um, I put out in three LPs and fantasy later repackaged. Right. To just do the complete uh, Vanguard. An amazing,
0: and an amazing record. You know.
1: Yeah. And uh, there was another Art Pepper called No Limit that was a quartet with Carl Burnett, Tony Dumas, George Cables. Um, there was uh, Hampton Hawes, Trio. I'm forgetting something, I'm sure. But anyway, it was a lot of material that needed to be put out. And right. one one of the realities of the jazz record business, and I'm sure the record business in general, is if you don't, provide the distributors with new product, this continuous flow of product, basically they wouldn't pay. So I had to do that. Well, fortunately, I knew how to do that. Well, I, I was less than stellar in terms of putting a jacket together. I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but I was also, you know, it wasn't, wasn't my forte. Although yeah. I did do some you know, did end up doing some pretty good ones. But I also was very short on resources. So for example, I did a Bobby Hutcherson record that I ended up taking the cover photo for because I couldn't afford to get somebody else to do it. <laughs> and it turned which, out to be a pretty good one.
0: Which record was that?
1: A solo quartet. Oh yeah. It's uh, overdubbing he was he was um interested in in boom you know max roach's right percussion ensemble and he wanted to do something like that but he also wanted to do quartet stuff with mccoy so we did that with mccoy billy higgins and herbie lewis and um uh there are some wonderful things about that record it was very difficult it was like pulling teeth in a way because Bobby wanted to have Herbie as the bass player because he had played with McCoy and he thought McCoy would be comfortable. And In those days, McCoy wasn't doing any sidemen gigs. But because he had this long-standing friendship and relationship with Bobby, he, he agreed to do it. And it was wonderful, really. And, I, you know, I first met McCoy when I was 13. Which would have been what year? 1963.
0: Oh wow. Okay. So
1: so I heard that's when I first heard the Coltrane Quartet in person. And um, Where so where it, was that? It was at Royce Hall at UCLA.
0: Uh-huh.
1: They had an amazing series there that my father took me and my sister and my whichever of my stepbrothers were interested in going. Miles' group was it was with Tony. Uh, Williams, Ron uh, Herbie Hancock and George Coleman
0: Uh
1: was just before Wayne came in Uh and then there was uh, Jerry Mulligan and Bobby Brookmeyer and then there was Charles Mingus which was scared me out of my wits (laughs) because it was a large ensemble and at one point you know he's He's leading from from the center of the group. He stops the ensemble. I don't, I don't know, there may be 10 musicians on stage, maybe more. And he named three guys, said, You, he named their name, you, you, and you. You're not playing my music. Get off my stage and don't come back here until you can play it. <laughs> and I mean in the middle of Royce Hall packed Royce Hall. Unbelievable experience and I you know we were pretty much up front in the in front of, you know maybe 7 8 rows back. So I really got a full dose of his you know his his anger. I have no other way of putting it. I mean he was just he was furious. And um it's interesting because one of the things i do these days is i edit the album packages from resonance records and we're getting ready to put out a mingus uh, album which was recorded live at ronnie scott's in london in 1972 and uh zev feldman who's the uh, the producer of all these, uh, archival issues, uh, puts, you know, gathers a group of different people to either interview or to write pieces. And so I've edited the 10 pieces that are going in this book. I mean, I don't know if you've seen any of the resonance.
0: No, I know um, I have. And for our, for our listeners, you know, some of them are not necessarily as jazz centric as I am. Residence Record has ha, Residence Records has basically found incredible archives and brought them back to the world. West Montgomery, John Coltrane, etc. And you're involved with that now, but you know, I mean, that's just yeah. part of your well, long legacy. I, well, I'm their lawyer.
1: No, oh. but, uh, but I also um, I am their editor. I'm their go-to. Album package editor,
0: uh-huh.
1: and um, so I'm reading these pieces, and one of the interviews is with Charles McPherson, who was a alto sax player, kind of Charlie Parker esque, who played with Mingus for 12 years, and he he gives this story where he. He's uh, I think nineteen or twenty. He and uh, and Lonnie Hillier, a trumpet player, both from Detroit, come to New York to, to test the waters to see if they can land a gig with a name band. Yeah. And through the the you know series of incidents, L- Yusuf Latif, who was also from Detroit, knew them and recommended them to Mingus. So Mingus came to hear them and then hired them. And uh, Charles McPherson says that on the first night of their gig, they're playing in uh, a club, and Mingus is having a dispute with the club owner, and in a fury, he started attacking the piano, and he and and he said he's he's taking grabbing those piano strings with his hands and ripping them out, wow. and and tearing the ripping the piano up and and he said and Lonnie Hillier and I looked at each other and said we auditioned for this we got this gig is is th- is this what we're gonna do <laughs> <laughs> so Mingus you know I, I mean I I fully appreciate his genius but he was a tortured genius and he was uh, he was kind of Uh, Well, as I say, I experienced it firsthand because my father took me to hear this concert.
0: Right.
1: And, uh, you know, in those days, Royce Hall, somebody at UCLA had had a brain on their head, you know. They they got all these different, you know, world-class jazz artists to play concerts in in this beautiful hall. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so that's when I first met Miles. i I think I was 12. You met Miles at
0: 12. Well, you know, well,
1: yeah, I and I got to know him later fairly well because we used to, you know, we used to, when he would come to town, we'd always have lunch with him once or twice. He was trying to get my father to let him produce some things for the label. But You know, so hand to mouth, and my father wanted to be producing records and was finding himself not able to, he was sort of reduced to, I hate to put it in these terms because I think it's honorable work, but, you know, we had one of the the best disc cutting systems, you know, LP mastering rooms in, in Los Angeles. Uh, contemporary and capital
0: yeah.
1: in those days were, the, were the, the generally regarded as the ones to go to. And, you know, you look at um, those days in the early 60s, middle 60s, when A&M was just getting established and Electra was just getting established here. And Jack Boltzmann and Herb Alper were both fans of my father's. And they cultivated him, and they they really wanted to get some of that special sound on their stuff. So my father was cutting their lacquers for them. And for many years, that was what kept the label afloat. Really? And that's when he hired Bernie Grundman, because he really wanted to be (laughs) producing records. And Bernie Bernie was from uh, Phoenix. And he'd just gotten out of the service and he called Roy Dunan, who was also from Phoenix, whom he had known when he was younger, to see if he could find a toehold to get into the studio, into the recording engineering business. So he came to work for my father as a um, trainee, basically, an engineer trainee. But Roy had recommended him as a serious guy. And my father quickly saw that Bernie had a good head on his shoulders and was very responsible and very careful. And so he trained him to do cut masters, cut lacquers, on all this material that came through from Electra and A&M. And then he tried to do, uh, my father tried to do uh, jazz producing, which, you know, again, he was... Just sort of limping along one or two projects a year, maybe. Yeah. In um, but uh, yeah, Bernie and I were both taught on the same gear by the same teacher how to cut lacquers.
0: Wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, I just want to relate. You, you, we had a conversation before and you were telling me how, you know, the difference how today versus yesterday, how, um, The cutting of the lacquer, the mastering was so much more like, almost what we call mixing today, in that copious notes were kept. You know, like a a muted trumpet comes in at this number, so drop back this channel at that. You
1: know, Or, or 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 more more often, drop the high end.
0: Uh-huh. Two D
1: B two D B for five seconds.
0: Right. I mean, so in other words, what we we're calling like mixing today was almost involved in the mastering process because of the direct yeah. two track process that led to it. And obviously that that changes the whole paradigm of
1: what we yeah, were using. Because to. the engineer recording a live two track record doesn't know what's coming he doesn't know how loud a trumpet or saxophone right. is Come in so sometimes you have to, to make adjustments in mastering which you know there were tricks there was certain equipment that you could uh, you know for example one thing that would happen my father liked to have the drums on one side and the bass on the other and the piano in the middle which he had the idea that that was more natural i it, wasn't really for a variety of reasons. But anyway, that's what he liked. So if you hear a lot of the um, the early fantasy reissues of contemporary stuff,
0: mm-hmm.
1: there are two things that they did wrong. One, they didn't know that we didn't use the RIAA curve, which Roy devised a system to reduce hiss, mm-hmm. where he pre he preemphasized the highs 60 dB at 10K in record and then it was meant to be brought down on playback uh-huh. and then it would bring down the excessive highs, but it would also bring down the hiss and it kind of worked but anyway they didn't want to hear that from me because I was just Les Koenig's idiot son because all great men who in the record business have sons, right. the sons are all idiots <laughs> according, according to the, uh, the common Belief, uh, n- not knowing that I had been intimately involved in in that, but so at fantasy they just weren't interested in hearing, and so they, the the um, initial uh, reissues were um, very tinny sounding, with not very much bottom and a lot of high end,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: um, I don't think they did a service to the catalog, frankly, because of that. But anyway, it's water under the bridge um but uh one of the things that happens when you have the base on one side is it's very easy to have what we call lifts that the the signal is so dynamic that the the stylus jumps off the surface of the lacquer yeah. so then you you have to scrap the lacquer so we have devices that you could take certain frequencies in the bottom and transfer them to the middle, so that the, the pulse and the pluck part of the bass you could hear is still on the right side, which is where you usually put it. But, you know, low frequency is essentially mono anyway, effectively. Yeah. It's not, you know, like if you, if you hear something really, really high frequency, like a finger cymbal or a snare drum brushes. And on on your left side or middle or right, you can hear it there. You can have a bass on your right, but it sounds more like it's in the middle. So that isn't really that much of a compromise artistically, but it sure made it easier to get the, the, the material on the surface of the lacquer. Right. Um, so we had a lot of tricks like that that you know weren't even really audible, but that... You know we had very i mean most of them weren't uh we call them normaled into the system you had to patch them in if you were if you intended to use them because most of the the ideal was to make it as clean as possible make the signal path as absolutely unadulterated as possible
0: right
1: so that was that was the system and if you hear bernie's product now by the way i um when we moved I gave him uh, our cutting system, I mean he had his own lathes which were more modern. The the original contemporary lathe is in in the basement of his studio, because I didn't have any place to put it nor any use for it, but it is the original cinema lathe that was used to record the sound for the first sound movie, The Jazz Singer, with Al Jolson. Jesus, but, but with different, um, obviously different electronics, <laughs> because, you know, we were trying to make records. We weren't trying to operate a museum.
0: Right.
1: Uh, and that was what my father decided to do. And it was, uh, you know, so it was a Scully Westrex kind of setup with a HACO cutterhead. HACO is Holzer Audio Engineering Company. And that was a company founded by Howard Holzer, who was Roy's, the second engineer who came in and worked with Roy Dunan together at Contemporary for several years. And then uh, um, Howard built all of uh, A&M's mastering studios wow. and uh, wow. Howard, was, Howard was an extraordinary guy. He, he, he was a pilot who liked to go to Mexico. I don't know what. I think he was building mastering rooms down there. (laughs) And uh, he died in a plane crash. Uh, I guess it was pilot error, supposedly. But you remember that um, car accident I told you about that I had before my meeting with Alan Wolf? Yeah. Uh, The accident was in Chowchilla. In those days, Route 5 didn't go all the way from... Northern to Southern California. So you could take five. I think you could take five down to somewhere in the middle of, uh, you know, like Merced kind of area. And then you had to cut over to the, to the route, The what is it, 99?
0: 99, yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh, it was on 152. And I was a passenger in a Morris Minor convertible. And the guy who was driving fell asleep and rolled the thing off the highway. And uh, so I was in an emergency hospital in Merced. I was first in Chowchilla, then they moved me to Merced. And my father and Howard flew up in Howard's plane to bring me down to LA. So that's how, Jeez. how, how uh, you know, close we all were that Howard would do that kind of thing. And he, he was an extraordinary guy, an extraordinary engineer, very tough, uh very loud voice, big kind of guy. I remember my father had cultivated a cat in the neighborhood and he called him office cat or O. C. And mm-hmm. he was a kind mm-hmm. of skittish cat, kind of uh fractious if if you know, he was scared by loud noises. Mm-hmm. And I remember Howard came by to visit one time, and he saw O.C. in the studio, and he said, oh, a cat! Here, kitty! And the cat just, like, a shot out the back door, not to be seen for three days. <laughs> that was Howard.
0: Well, and so you took over when your when your dad passed, and... You just you just jump full full into like producing jazz records, right? Because, well, I, mean, I,
1: I I had done a number of records with him before, you know, before I left the country, and uh-huh. you know when I when I graduated from UCLA, even before it was in 1969. I was in college, and. Uh, keep News called my father and he wanted to record Joe Henderson at the lighthouse and wondered if we, he could use us to record it. So he, re- he, I, he had me recruit a friend and we got a panel truck and loaded the gear down and set it all up. And uh, um, it was interesting to me because I was a big fan of Woody Shaw. I had heard him play on Horace Silver's Cape Verdean Blues album. And I had never heard of Woody Shaw. I didn't know where he was. I didn't know his story. And it turned out he had been in Europe. He had gone to Europe to play with Eric Dolphy. And then Eric Dolphy died. But uh, he stayed around Europe for a while because... uh, um, you know, there was a band, a kind of a, I, I won't call it an Eric Dolphy tribute band, but there was a band of uh, people who were Dolphy um, associates uh, that was that had a regular gig at a, a club on the left bank called Lushaki Petsch. Mm. And uh, so he had been there and then I don't know how it happened that he recorded the Cape Verdean Blues album. Uh, and then he did a, an album with Larry Young, with Elvin, it was, and Ron Carter. Yeah,
0: yeah, it was, yeah.
1: And um, those were the only things that, that, in those days, you could hear Woody on. But I was completely captivated with him from the time I was 15. And... Uh, I asked my father, who's playing with Joe? And he's, he said, I don't know, call Oren. So I called Oren. I said, hi, it's John Koenig. And as he always did, Oren said, sir. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, we're we're doing the, you know, getting the gear down there. I just wondered who was in the band. And he said, well, let's see. George Cables and Woody Shaw and, and Lenny White and Ron McClure. And, and immediately I was beside myself because i've been trying to track down woody shaw for four years with no success at all so uh they came in we we uh set up we did a kind of a sound check and bernie grundman by the way this is the only album that bernie ever recorded as the recording engineer wow and uh <laughs> it actually was Quite a good sounding record, but um, <laughs> but uh, it, the mastering on the original release of it was not quite up to snuff, and uh, there was no bottom to it, and it wasn't because of the way we recorded either, but anyway, it was a very good sounding record. But anyway, so we're, we're setting up, and then there, you know the lighthouse, right? Yeah, sure. You know that little, that little it's like postage stamp-sized dressing room up the stairs? Yeah so there are these two banquettes and a kind of a coffee table in between and woody was on one side and i was on the other and so i was talking to him and i i you know told him i that i really loved his playing and all of that and i said so do you have a record deal he said no i said do you have any tunes he said i got a stack of tunes this high and it was like at his shoulder he put yeah. his arm out his hand out like to indicate that he had the stack of tune, yeah, tunes right. three feet high and uh so um uh, I went and told my father, hey, you know, I talked to Woody, he doesn't have a record deal, you should sign him. So they signed him. Wow. <laughs> and he made he made uh, the Blackstone Legacy with back in New York with uh, with Gary Bart and uh and um uh, George and Ron Carter and uh, Lenny White and uh, Clint Houston. There were two bass players on it. Right. And uh, um, uh, Benny Maupin. And then uh, a year later, we made, when, when Woody was playing with Art Blakey, we made a record with two of the guys from Art Ramon Morris and Manny Boyd and George and uh, Um, uh, Sonship Theus the late Lamented and uh, Henry Franklin and uh, then he based on those I think was able to make a deal uh, with Columbia and I think by then he had um, become managed by uh, um Maxine,
0: yeah, Maxine Gordon, right? Gordon, right? It was back when he when he joined with Dexter.
1: Yeah, she later married Dexter. She was married to Woody. She's she's Woody the Third's mother, but then Woody died, and she married Dexter.
0: Right, but I I remember that time. I mean, that's I'm really really you know intimately aware of that. You know. Yeah.
1: So. So anyway, I, I was involved, I had my hand in the in that whole scene earlier. Uh-huh. And we had done a my father had done a Sonny Simmons album. That was a great record too. It was uh with uh Barbara Donald, his wife, who was quite good and well she's and with Mark, Sonny
0: She was with Sonny Simmons when I was growing yeah. up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, Michael White, the violinist, right. and Lonnie Lonnie Liston Smith, and Clifford Jarvis, and Richard Davis, and Cecil McBee, right? A really wonderful double LP. And um, I had been around, you know, Barney's Feeling Free with Bobby Hutcherson and and Chuck DeMonico and Elvin, right. and Phineas Newborn with Elvin and Ray Brown, so. You know, even though before I was officially working there, I was involved in those projects, and uh, then started getting producing credits when I was around eighteen. I think the first one was Sonny's uh-huh. and Woody Shaw, and then and there were. You, were Art you pepper. involved
0: with the World of Piano and, and the Finest Newborn stuff? Or um, was that before in, you? interestingly enough?
1: Finest was the father. And Phineas was Phineas Newborn Jr. And the reason that Phineas was Phineas and Phineas was Phineas was so that they would know in the house who, who was being called.
0: Uh, well, but, but but I've always heard that he wanted to be referred to as Phineas. I mean, no,
1: he was. He, we all called everyone called him Phineas, and his really? father was, oh. was Phineas. Okay. Yeah, and the, the the final authority on that was Phineas the third. Uh. uh who told George Claven that that was how... Because George tried to refer to Phineas Newborn Jr. as Finest. He said, no, that was my grandfather.
0: Oh, really? Because, yeah. you know, I mean, that's... You know, I mean, I don't care one way or the other. Whatever you want to be called, yeah. I'll call you. That World of Piano record changed my life. I've got to tell well, you. Well,
1: I, I, I mean, he was extraordinary. Yeah. Just an extraordinary force but also a very, very troubled human being.
0: Yeah. Oh, I I heard him live, you know, at the Keystone Corner back in the 70s when he came through San Francisco. And he was very troubled and he would play something brilliant and then he would stop. And he would just sort of like cry or whatever. And then he'd come back to life. Reanimate. Yeah. And I remember, you know, being a kid of 17 16 you know with my friends going to listen to this and and I and I said to him I said I don't ever want to be that good. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah.
1: I went I went to pick him up for the the last record that we did in 76. And he wasn't at the peak of form but he was playing well. Yeah. And I went to pick him up at the airport, and he had just flown in from Memphis, and he had a kind of a guy who was an alto sax player named Fred Ford, who had played in Ray Charles's band, who was uh, kind of looking after him, making sure he stayed out of trouble, making sure that he ate, you know, that kind of thing. Very nice guy. And they were on the same flight with Ray. So that was the first time I met Ray Charles. Was oh, picking Phineas wow. up at the airport. Although I did get to, to meet him later on because of my association with Ahmet.
0: Yeah.
1: But uh, that's a whole other episode.
0: Yeah, yeah. We we obviously have a lot more to do here. But, God, man, this is, this is so interesting to me. And, of course, you know, right in the middle of... Um, You know your father's legacy and Barney's legacy right now in my life. It's just so present. You know, I mean, I feel like ghosts are in my closet. Um, Well, you knew Barney well, uh, very well, very well. Uh, But but still, you know, it's we're in this moment now, and all those records and my recollections and the present it's just all colliding you know yeah. and I, I really appreciate your context for it all because it's
1: well my own peculiar little <laughs> little experience with it yeah yeah because it's
0: you know I mean it, it, to me it's it's just a heritage in a community and a story you know that it's ongoing
1: well i I think you'll probably understand when I say this you know i I was pretty clueless throughout my life about things. It didn 't occur to me that everybody in the world hadn't met Miles Davis or john Coltrane it It was just a matter of fact thing in in my world and um, I I appreciated them as geniuses and giants and people I I admired tremendously. But I, I didn't really have an idea of how extraordinary it was to have that kind of contact with them any more than I re- appreciated the Ashgrove and being able to see Mississippi John Hurt or, uh, you know, these these people from the Mississippi Delta, who had practically never traveled from their home in the, in the early mid60s, uh, who were you know, practitioners of a cultural um, medium that has driven modern pop culture, it, both here and in England and around the world for more than three quarters of a century, I think, you know, uh, yeah. the, you know, my, you, you know, who John Wood is? John Wood. Yeah.
0: No.
1: He, he's a piano player. His, his father was Randy Wood, the founder of Dot Records and Randy was from Murfreesboro, Tennessee John and I used to play together. I recorded on some of his records, uh, both guitar and cello. But um, Randy started out after the war. He he had a a radio repair shop. And he decided, being an enterprising guy, that he'd put a rack of records up. And... um, soon the records were doing more he was making more money from selling records than he was from repairing radios and it became an appliance store (laughs) but still the records were were the big thing and so he started a mail order record business randy's records that became a big international deal and that's where the rolling stones got their blues records from holy shit! you know that that was you know so it you know the impact that that music had on world culture, if you want to call it that, is incalculable. but you know these it 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 resonated with these people, with these young guys in England, resonated with me. You know the people I met at the Ashgrove in the early days, Rai Cooter and Taj Mahal, whom I later worked with and and uh, Bonnie Raitt, you know th- those are all people who hung out there,
0: <laughs> right?
1: And were and, you know Bonnie, I I I I have it on good authority, basically uh, traveled around with Fred McDowell for a better part of a year, and learned a tremendous amount from him. Was a slide guitar player. Yeah, uh, she was influenced uh, obviously a lot by Rye as well. But so it was, uh, it was something I didn't fully, I mean, I appreciated it in that I cleaved to that, that artistic uh, uh, expression, but I didn't realize how unusual it was. I just didn't know.
0: I I just think that that's normal for people who are in the middle of it, you know, it's just your world, right? I mean, you don't know, I mean... Yeah, you're, you're at the center of a storm. You're in the eye of the hurricane. It seems calm to you, you know.
1: Yeah.
0: But getting perspective, it's funny.
1: It's funny. Just one little anecdote. I went to my 50 year high school reunion. I guess it was three or four years, four years ago.
0: Uh huh.
1: And there was a girl there whom I liked and uh, who sat next to me in Spanish class, and she had. This would have been 64, 65, and she had written on her notebook, A Love Supreme. Now, I I don't know that she knew anything about Coltrane or the music, but I had been meeting Coltrane. (laughs) And, and, And it didn't occur to me that I should say, oh, by the way, I just talked to him last week.
0: God, this is so
1: amazing, man. But anyway, yeah, I I remember the first time we saw him at Royce Hall, and uh, my father and sister and I went, and then we drove him back to his where he was staying. He was staying at a, a motel on the Sunset Strip across from where tower records was uh, east of there and um so we're walking out of oris hall and he's he's got his tenor case and his soprano case and my sister my little sister who was 12 said uh oh can i can i carry that one of those for you take you know basically ease your burden
0: and he said
1: he smiled he said no that's okay um And I I told her about that later, and she said, but he looked so sad.
0: Wow.
1: You know, he was tired after a a long concert. It was not long after the Kennedy assassination, so uh, it was, um, you know, a fraught time. And I don't think people were feeling particularly joyful. But it was an amazing thing to hear.
0: Wow! Wow. Well, John, I think we've oversaturated our audience, and can we <laughs> just can we just invite you back to continue sure. this conversation another time? You bet, man. I think I've definitely proven my point here, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just got to say that personally, you know, I, I reached out to John because of my pole winners project and the amount of perspective and i don't know a humanity that i have gained from our relationship is amazing and i'm so grateful that you are willing to share this with our audience for the podcast you know and especially as a fellow guitarist you know you're a well, wanker you'll always be a wanker And that's just what it is, you know? Yeah, I'm a
1: cellist. Uh, I I think it's probably been better part of the year since I've even picked up a guitar.
0: Yeah, but still, once a guitar player, always a guitar player.
1: I say give me a month, and I I might be uh, in something approaching my old form.
0: And I'd love to someday hang out and bring you this guitar and have you play a few choruses on it. You know what I mean? Oh,
1: I would love that. I love that guitar.
0: Okay, so like, be well, and you're coming back. I hope, and we'll stay in uh, touch. A, okay, anytime,
1: anytime. Just uh, let me know.
0: Thank you, John. Thanks. Wow, Bruce. that was the most edifying experience. It was so beautiful. Thank you, man. Well,
1: my pleasure. All Troy, right. nice to meet you. Pleasure. See you later. Be well, John. Uh, Good, night. Good night. Night.